Well, amen. I want to ask the rest of you to turn to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Let's stand as we open the Word of God and look at verses 15 through 24. Luke chapter 14. Very familiar parable to some of you. It says, Now when one of those who sat at the table with him, him being Jesus, heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and sent his servant at supper time, to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they, all with one accord, began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a piece of ground. I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to the servant, Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor, the maimed, and the lame, and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. Father, Lord, I pray that this morning each of us would heed this command as well as this warning. That I'm not only to go and compel others to come be a part of the kingdom, but Lord, I pray that we would see the need to respond to the invitation You've played on, placed on each of our lives as well. Lord, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would do something special today. That it would quicken our spirits to be Christ-like and to be about Your work in this world with greater enthusiasm, greater urgency, greater passion than we've ever experienced. Lord, that means it has to come from You. So we ask for that. We totally depend on that today in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I don't know if it's interesting or ironic that uh, two weeks in a row now, a very famous musician by the name of George has passed away. Uh, Last week we spoke of George Beverly Shea. This week it was the famous George Jones. And so those of you who were country when country wasn't cool know exactly who I'm talking about. Evidently, uh, many throughout the world know who I'm talking about. Uh, His nickname to a lot of people was Possum, for some reason. I never asked why. But uh, for perhaps some of you who may be a little bit older than me, um, or even some of you my age that may have had tickets to a couple of shows in Athens years ago, I remember him by a different nickname, not because I had tickets, but because I heard about the no-show. He became known as uh, No-Show Jones because he didn't show up for the concerts for various reasons. Now, I don't know where he stood with the Lord at the end of his life, and I'm sure there may be somebody here that followed his life well enough to be quite familiar with it, but I know that the life he lived was not exactly the same type of life, nor was the message in his music the same type of message as that of the previous George that we spoke of 
who would rather have Jesus than anything. And uh, so I, I made a comment on a friend of mine's post uh, this week, and I just said, I hope that he wasn't a no-show in heaven. I hope that he came to know the Lord, and maybe you have information that he did. But I know one thing, it's, uh, it's a very disappointing thing for people who are expecting company, who are expecting someone to show up. And last week we spoke of expecting company and being sure that in our hearts and in our homes and in our corporate worship that there was a mentality of expectation, that we were ready, that we were expecting company, that the place was set, that there was a chair available. But once we set the table, once we have a chair... We don't want a lot of no-shows. And uh, I'm excited that, very literally speaking, even in, in our worship services, we were able to purchase and add chairs. But now we need to fill those chairs. We want to see people uh, sitting under the Word of God and under the, the, the teaching and, and, and singing and preaching of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. But, but something that's more disturbing than the fact that there will be no-shows in heaven... Uh, or something more disturbing that there would be no-shows in worship attendance is that there would be no-shows in heaven one day. That our hearts would be broken for those who will not be there. See, once the Lord prepares the table, He sends out an invitation. In this context, in Luke chapter 14, in verse 15, we see one of the Pharisees they're at the home of a Pharisee. By the way, this home was probably uh, oozing with religious pride because so many of the Pharisees were in attendance. Jesus had actually used this occasion to rebuke some of the religious pride. But this Pharisee, in verse 15, with great joyful assurance, is talking about a better feast, a better supper. And he says, won't it be good when we're all there? And they understood a little bit of something, though they missed Messiah and and what he was supposed to be about in his first coming as a suffering servant. They knew a little bit about the Messianic kingdom, and they knew a little bit about that great wedding feast that would take place at the consummation of the ages. And with that assurance, he says, want to be great when we are gathered together on that day, depending on his religion and good works, perhaps even depending on his nationality, his bloodline. But the emphasis was not on a relationship with the Master. The kingdom was something that was out there to him one day to experience. And Jesus had come to say, the kingdom is now here. I am right here in your midst. And you're missing out on it. And so in verse 16, Jesus takes advantage of this setting as he had done previously, and he tells a parable of the kingdom. He sets the stage by describing a great supper. And again, even in Jewish thought, they would have understood that this had to do with the consummation of the ages, that God would call us into his presence in in a way one day, whether it was a a picture of a perfect earthly kingdom, the millennial kingdom, or, or heaven. I don't think they could get their mind around all of that at this point. But they were looking forward to a great feast. The Jews often ver, uh, viewed the Jews often viewed the first coming of Messiah as we view the second coming. 
Not coming back to take sides, coming back to take over, coming back to be in charge and establish his kingdom. And so they were looking forward to that day. And this parable goes on to illustrate that God has sent an invitation to more than just this elite religious crowd to be a part of the kingdom. And he wanted them to be a part, everybody, everywhere, he wanted them to be a part of the kingdom, not just then, far away, but here and now. He wanted them to come in and come and dine and come and experience life in him. And so he's quick to tell his disciples in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Seek first the kingdom. Get in on kingdom living. Get to know the king and his plan for your life. And everything else will take care of itself. So certainly the first application of this parable for us as believers is to be a good witness. To go and compel people to come into the kingdom. Come and dine. Come and feast. The feast certainly represented being a part of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and all that God has for us for eternity. But I also think that we can apply this to inviting people to be a part of a corporate worship. Inviting people to be a part of the local church. And let me explain why I think that that's not a misappropriation of the verse or taking it out of context. First of all, the body of Christ, which is referred to as the church, the ecclesia, those called out and called together to represent God in the world today. Those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, the church, is currently the manifestation of the kingdom of God in the world today. We are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. The kingdom of God is represented by those whom Christ reigns over, and Christ is the head of the church according to Colossians chapter 1. And so inviting people to be a part of the local church, which 90% of the time the word church is used in the New Testament, it's not talking about the church universal, it's talking about a local body of believers. And so inviting people to come and be a part of corporate worship or the the ongoing activities of the local body of Christ, the, the local church, is indeed an invitation to come check out the kingdom of God. To come and be a part of the kingdom. Secondly, corporate worship is also our feasting at the table. When we gather together, we gather together as the body of Christ, as members of His kingdom here on earth. And when we gather together in our worship and and, in the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, we are feasting at the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are also inviting people to that feast. And finally, I don't think I'm stretching it to say we should be out there inviting people to church because I know that in our worship services on Sunday morning, in our Awana ministry, in our student ministry, in our kids' worship, in our life groups, I know that the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ is being presented in a way that if someone doesn't know the Lord, that it will instruct them as to how they can come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so I have probably years ago made the mistake of so emphasizing the importance of you going and sharing the gospel. And by the way, next week we will focus on the importance of you going out there to share the gospel. But perhaps there have been times that I have so emphasized that, that there are believers who have said, you know, I don't need to invite people to church. My responsibility is to share the gospel out there. 
But I think that God has raised up some people like he did Cornelius, who says, you know what, Peter's going to present the message of the gospel. I'm going to get my family and my friends and my neighbors and everybody there to hear Peter present the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's something that the church has lost, the art of invitation. We're, we're so intimidated, so afraid, well, I've got to preach the gospel to them that we forget that we're to be inviting our friends and our family and our neighbors and our associates to come and see what God is doing in the local church. We have simply forgotten to invite people to church. Not just at this church, but from what we see throughout this nation, we're not inviting people. Now let me ask you a question. I just want you to respond with a raised hand. How many of you here were saved at a Billy Graham crusade? A great evangelistic crusade of some kind. Raise your hand. How many of you are saved at a Billy Graham crusade or a great evangelistic crusade? I see you. One. At least one hand over here. All right. Now, having asked you that, let me ask you another question. How many of you were saved? How many of you came to know the Lord through the, the fact that a pastor or a member of an evangelistic team came into your home and in your home, this visitation team presented the gospel, and when they presented the gospel in your home, you prayed to receive Christ. Raise your hand. All right, let's see, one or two, three. So there are a few of you that would identify with that. Let me ask you one more question. How many of you came to faith in Christ because your parents or somebody who loves you, a friend or a neighbor, somebody invited you to a local church or the activity of a local church, maybe a camp that they were putting on or something like that, but somebody invited you to come be a part of what the local church was doing, either in worship, in Sunday school, and in a church camp or something like that, and when this local church was, was gathered together in this activity, you came to faith in Jesus Christ. Would you raise your hand? All right, everybody look around. So do we need to be inviting people to church? You better believe it better believe it. Just by a raised hand in this place, I know that I need to equip you and that our leaders here at the church need to equip you to go from house to house to share the gospel. You need to know how to, in your school and in your workplace, share the gospel with others. And I know that we need to support great evangelistic crusades and, and events like that because we see people coming to Christ in great numbers and and, and those, those are wonderful opportunities. But just by a show of hands, that I could estimate that at least 95%, probably more of you, came to faith in Christ as a result of someone inviting you to church. Someone bringing you where the corporate body of believers were gathered. So let me make about three comments here, and we'll wrap this up. And I pray that as a result of it, we will all, be compelled to go and share an invitation to come be a part of what God is doing. Number one, we need to invite those who have heard. We need to invite those who have heard. In verse 17, it says that he sent his servant, this master who's, who's having this banquet, this feast, this supper. He sent his servant at supper time to invite those who had been invited. Come, all things are now ready. It was very 
typical in these days for someone to have a great feast, but they would have sent out an earlier invitation, said, hey, kind of be ready around this week or this day. We'll tell you when everything's ready. We'll send out another invitation. But they sent out an earlier invitation, so they already knew this day was coming. They already knew that there was going to be a great feast, that there was going to be great fellowship, and it would be a wonderful thing to be a part of. And then they would send the second invitation. So these are people who had already heard and should have been expecting it. But unfortunately, when the time came, they were not ready. John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus says, You search the Scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. Speaking to the religious crowd, the religious Jews, He says, Man, you, you hold fast to the Scriptures. Speaking of the law and the prophets and the writings of what we would call the Old Testament. Because in them you think you have eternal life. He said, They are they which testify of Me. The invitation is an invitation to come to me, Jesus is the host of the great feast, of the celebration. There are those who have been part of the church, those who have grown up in Christian homes, those that, are, that have already heard the invitation many times, but they're in danger of missing out on the party. They're in, in danger of missing out on what God's doing. And Jesus says, go to them. Tell them it's ready. Tell them it's time. Tell them to, to, to come on and be a part of it. And what did they do? They, they responded with excuses. We, we've all met people who have excuses for not coming to Christ. We've met people who have excuses for not coming to church and being a part of what God is doing. I've often said excuses are like armpits. Everybody's got a couple. Most of them stink. And so they, they give the excuses. Verses 18 and 19. By the way, these are good excuses. These are really good excuses. In verse 18... The response, the excuse was, I've bought a piece of ground. Now, it was very common in those days. If you, if you began this purchasing process, you had to go check it out. You had to see the transaction through. There was work to be done. This was an agrarian society. Agriculture was a big part of what they were doing, and, and, and this is business. And verse 19 is closely related. It says, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to test them. Ask you to have me excuse. I've got, I've got work to do. This is my livelihood. This is, this is my business. You don't understand. I've got important work to do. I, I can't be a part of what's going on at the feast. I can't be a part of the work of the local church because you don't understand. I've got work to do, Jesus. I've got to make a buck. To that, I think Jesus would say, what would it profit if you gained the whole world and lost your own soul? This is a good excuse. We're not talking about... They didn't say, hey, I've got, I've got a day at the lake plan. Pastor, you don't understand. I've got ball practice. I've got... You know, I had a long Saturday. I'm just feeling a little bit lazy this morning. think I want to sleep in. You've got to understand that, Pastor. No, these, this was a good excuse. This was his vocation. This was his livelihood. And Jesus says that's not a good enough excuse. Because we're to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Well, then, surely we can come up with a better excuse not to get in on what God's doing, right? Well, what, what would Jesus think is more important than, than work, vocation, livelihood? What about this? What about family? What about family? Now, Trinity is a church that makes family one of their core values. And so, well, that's a good reason not to be a part of the gathering of believers, right? And so when we 
come to verse 20, still another said, I have married a wife. I can't come, I can't come to the banquet. I can't come to the feast. I just got married. And that was a big deal. According to Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 5, if a man had just been married, he was exempt from even serving in the military for a year. I think that's probably a pretty good policy. Man, get things right at home. Make family a priority. So Scripture has always made family a big priority. One problem with that, even your family doesn't become more important than seeking first the king and his kingdom. As a matter of fact, it should be part of it. We should bring our family, we should be together with our family on the Lord's Day, we should bring them to church. And somebody's going to tell you, you know, it's Sunday is the only day that I have with my family, Pastor, and encourage them. Say, well, what's the best thing you can do with your family? The best thing you can do with your family is bring them in to the house of God to be a part of what God is doing. This leads to, I think, the use of what we would call hyperbole in verse 26. When he talks about the cost of discipleship, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, and children, brothers, and sisters, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Wait a minute, Pastor, you're telling me that Jesus says if you're going to be a disciple of him, you've got to hate your own family, hate your spouse, hate your kids? Doesn't he tell me in other places I'm supposed to love my wife as Christ loves the church? Absolutely. By the way, it's a literary device. We use them today. They use them in biblical times. It's called hyperbole. What it meant by that is your love for the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, should be so powerful. Your love should be so strong that your love for others, comparatively speaking, is almost like hate. That's how passionately you should love the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, I would argue that when I love Jesus like I should love Jesus, it makes my love for my wife and kids even better. When I'm not loving Jesus, when I'm not worshiping Him, when, when I neglect private or corporate worship, then I can't love my family like I should love my family. And so he, he comes up with these examples. And again, it's, it's not the little excuses we come up with that we know, well, Pastor, I know that's, that's not a good excuse. No, this was a good one. It's work. He had already said previously, how many of you on the Sabbath wouldn't get an ox out of the ditch? Come on, that's work. And family, we know we're to love our family, but he goes, they're not substitutes for being a part of the kingdom of God. You should lead them to be a part of the kingdom and what God is doing. Excuses to miss the banquet. Not, simply, there's not enough love there for the host. When, when we reject the invitation, there's just simply not the love there for the host. And so we can be ready for people to come up with those excuses. I've heard it said before that there's never an excuse to miss out on a trip to the White House if you're invited. You know, someone asked uh, uh, someone who was good with etiquette and said, what is the proper etiquette for turning down an invitation to the White House? And the response was, there is no proper etiquette. You do not turn down an invitation to the White House. But you know, a couple of years ago, uh, President Obama, being from Chicago, invited the 1985 Chicago Bears football team to come to the White House because they had missed out on their opportunity as a result of the Challenger catastrophe back in 19, early 1986. Because of that, what happened with that space shuttle, their 
trip to the White House was canceled at that moment. And the, the team never was uh, able to reschedule a time together at the White House. And so, on the 25th anniversary of their celebration of a Super Bowl championship, y'all remember the 85 Bears team, right? The Super Bowl shuffle and, and uh, William, the refrigerator, Perry running uh, the ball into the end zone and, and uh, flashy Jim McMahon throwing the ball over the place. You know, they, they, they were not going to miss out. Walter Payton, they were not going to miss out on a trip to the White House, right? Well, there was one player that I happened to, to remember watching. His name was Dan Hampton. He could really put the pressure on a quarterback, but he rejected an invitation to the White House. He didn't go. And when asked why, he said, well, to be honest with you, I'm just not a fan of the man that's in the White House. <laughs> as great as the White House is, he was saying, I'm just not a fan of the man. I don't care to go because I don't care about the man who's in the White House. Listen, the ultimate bottom line when it comes to inviting people to worship, when it comes to inviting people to being a part of the church, when it it comes to inviting people to get in on what will ultimately lead them into the house of God, the eternal house of God, is they just haven't been introduced to the man it's all about. They're not a fan of Jesus Christ. And they need to fall in love with Him. We need to send the invitation regardless of the excuse. People aren't interested in church often because they don't care about the host. It's all about Jesus, but so is heaven. It's all about Jesus. Many have heard Let's not forget, though, there were the disciples. There were the 120 in the upper room. There were 3,000 in Jerusalem. All of the, He came into His own. His own received Him not. But as many as received Him to them, He gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believed on His name. There were some that responded. Nicodemus did eventually come to faith in Christ and make that public. Joseph of Arimathea made his relationship public eventually. And so don't give up on those who have heard and heard and heard. Invite them again and again. And again, secondly, invite those who are hurting. There are some who haven't heard that are hurting. In verse 21, he says, Now I want you to go to the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. These were the social outcasts of Israel and Rome. Be careful about only going to those who are like you. I believe that's why we're not reaching this county. I believe that's why 80% of the population of Madison County, Georgia, will not be in worship today is because they don't feel like they are too much like you or me. Be careful about only inviting those who are like you. They have something in common with you. Perhaps many of those who already have much in common with you have it in common that they're in worship somewhere today. And often the churches of this county and, and other regions of Georgia and, and, and the South, the Bible Belt, our worship services are kind of like a pre-wedding party. You know, my wife and I went to a few of those pre-wedding parties and we met different crowds at different ones before we got married. And then we wanted to see everybody come, kind of show up for the wedding. And so worship services are kind of like pre-wedding parties looking forward to the big day. And it's almost like we kind, of, we kind of get in a fight. We want the people who are already going to the wedding. We want the people who are already going to somebody's wedding party. We want them to come to our wedding party. And so, you know, don't go to that wedding party, come to this wedding party. But we need to go to those who have been left out of the invitation and invite them to come because nobody has invited them. The poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. The socially vulnerable. 
We spoke about that in our life group this morning. How boy, the, the cults, the false prophets, they will prey on the socially vulnerable. They'll go get them. They'll bring them in with destructive heresies and, and false doctrines. So do we just make fun of that as a church? Or do we say, you know what? We better get to their house before the Jehovah's Witness do. We better get to their house before those who would exploit them get there. And we better send them an invitation to come to the party, come be a part of what God's doing. Now, if a so-called church represents their own kingdom, by that I mean they, they're trying to build their own kingdom, they're neglecting the mission, they don't preach and teach the Word of God as authoritative. They don't care about reaching kids or the next generation. If that's where a church stands philosophically, I have no problem with someone saturating that place with their absence and coming here to a church that is going to be committed to the preaching and teaching of the Word of God and reaching the next generation. Imagine a hospital staff that would turn an ambulance away because, no, no, you've got bloody, broken people in there. You've got bloody, broken people in there, and we don't want them coming in and messing up our hospital. You would say that's ludicrous. That's what the hospital is there for. And by the way, that's what the church is here for. Bruised and abandoned and hurting and bloody and broken people. And we're to go and invite them in to come be a part of what God is doing. You and I are God's EMTs. We're to go out there, and at times that's the only place we can minister. That's the only place we can care. They're not going to come to the church, and so we do our best in that situation. But whenever we can, we want to bring them to be a part of the family of God. We want to bring them into the house of God, the gathering of believers, so that they can receive more care and more encouragement. Maybe it's broken homes, broken marriages. Maybe they're in sinful bondage of some kind, homeless, abused. Those who are hurting and disenfranchised, in fact, need us the most. And they're usually, usually, they're the ones that are the most open to the gospel and to change. So, in our inviting, let's invite those who have heard, but let's also go to those who are hurting and haven't heard. And finally, let's invite those who are hungry. What do I mean by hungry? Look at verse 22. And the servant said, Master, it is done. Uh, there is still room. It is, there's, there's always room for more. Then the master said to the servants, Go out to the highways and the hedges. The Jews would have understood that Jesus was hinting here toward reaching those outside of the Jewish nation. Reaching those who haven't heard. And compel them to come in and be a part. There should always be room for more. Don't look at who is here this morning. Ask God to give you eyes for who is not here this morning and go get them. Highways and hedges, going to the, the farthest out places. Luke was a Gentile. He was writing to a Gentile audience and he was saying to a Gentile audience, Jesus was saying, there's room at the table for you. There's room in the house for you. You come and be a part of it. And whatever we have to do, we always want to make room and expect company. The Roman Empire was full of Greek and Roman mythologies and philosophies. Why was it abounding in all of these cult-like philosophies and, and, and all of these 
various religions, they were hungry for something. They were hungry for the supernatural. They were hungry for, an, for a real, authentic encounter with some kind of God. Isn't it interesting? Jesus came in the fullness of time. The Greek philosophers had come along and, and basically created an environment that would ask the question, what is truth? What is truth? Jesus came saying, I am the truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so what does he say to do concerning these people? He says, compel them. Some translations say, make them come in. Now in the Greek, it, what it really means is, make them come in. That, that, he, he's saying, be somewhat forceful about this. Help them overcome their shyness. Help them overcome their reluctance. Help them overcome their feelings of unworthiness. Well, I'm shy, I'm a little nervous, I'm unworthy, I don't belong. You help them overcome and you compel, you make them come in. See, we're too quick to take no for an answer. And now we've gotten even quick to take no for an answer, even from our own kids or our own grandkids. Well, I don't want to make them do anything they don't want to do. They're seven years old. They told me they didn't feel like going to church. I tell people I had a drug problem when I was seven years old. My mom drugged me to church. She didn't say, do you feel like going to church with me today? She said, we're going to church. And now we don't want to compel. We don't want to make them do anything they don't feel like doing. I'll just be honest with you. Can I, can I just make a confession about Robbie Brown in the flesh? When I'm in the flesh, I am an indecisive, uncommitted person. But like I said, my, my mom didn't ask me if I felt like going to church. God called me into ministry at age 19. He didn't say, now Robbie, do you feel like doing this? As a matter of fact, he sent somebody who I later found out was a deacon at this church who went to be with the Lord several years ago to, to lay their hand on my shoulder while I was at the altar and quote Luke 9.62, he who takes hold of the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Now that's a heavy rap for a 19-year-old. But God was solidifying my call into the ministry. He didn't ask me if I felt like it. He called me to preach His Word. When I was 25 years of age, man, I thank God for my wife. Now, let's go back to about age 23. Because remember, Robbie Brown in the flesh, indecisive and uncommitted. And that can be quite confusing to somebody that you're dating. But she didn't give up on me. And she prayed for me. God had already told her I was the one. But at age 25, I spoke some vows. And we've been married now. I've been in ministry for 24 years. I've been married for 17? Yeah. <laughs> 17 years, going on 18 years. We are compelled to come to Christ. And we are to compel others. We are to come to a place where we say, you know what, I love you, and because I love you, I just can't take no for an answer. Let's go. Someone is dying of starvation. What do you do? You compel them to eat. There's a hungry world out there. They're hungry for the gospel. They don't always know what they're hungry for. They don't know what they're hungry for. But I know this. If my son, those of you who have 15-year-olds know what I'm talking about, they can eat you out of house and home in a day. You know, they don't eat a bowl of cereal, they eat a box of cereal. 
If my son just quit eating all of a sudden, I'd say something's wrong. If he went two or three days, unless he said God had called him to a spiritual fast, I'd say, boy, you've got to eat something. And I'd eventually say, you know, you don't have a choice in the matter. You've got to eat something. And Jesus has said, go and compel them to come to the feast. Go and compel them. Go make them come and eat. Come and dine. Come be a part. We don't have that fervency. We don't have that urgency. We don't want to make anybody do anything they don't want to do. Listen, we've got to learn that we can't take no for an answer. And I don't mean go on crusades. They might have misused and abused this verse. I don't mean convert people by the sword. We don't want outward confirmation without inward transformation. But with a broken heart and with all sincerity, we're to say, you don't want to miss this. You've got to be a part. I can't take no for an answer. You're breaking my heart. Come to Jesus. Come be a part of the kingdom. Get in on what God has for you. Would you bow your heads with me?